0: turn in your Bible to James chapter 1 as we begin a new series from this important epistle. It's said that uh, cheese and wine can be aged to perfection. Some insist that steak can be cooked to perfection. But in this passage, believe that uh, God tests us. God the master chef, he perfects his saints by testing us for the display of his glory in all of eternity. We'll see at least five ways that God tests us for our own good and for His glory. Please follow as I read verses 1 through 18. James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the twelve tribes in the dispersion. Greetings. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. For that person must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. He is a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. Let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation, and the rich in his humiliation. Because like a flower of the grass, he will pass away. For the sun rises with its scorching heat, and withers the grass. Its flower falls, and its beauty perishes." Of his own will he brought for us forth by the word of truth, that we should be a kind of firstfruits of his creatures. This is God's word. Let's pray. Our gracious God and Father, we thank you for this portion of your word, and we pray that you would illuminate it, give us understanding, and help us to uh, receive the application from your Holy Spirit this night. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Perhaps you remember your school, te- your school days feeling like the test would never come to an end until you finally reach the end of the school year, or perhaps your long-awaited graduation day. I can remember in high school preparing for the SAT, and people who had gotten the perfect score offered tips and guides and classes on how to, how to beat the exam. But scoring a perfect score seemed impossible for me at the time. You know, companies and even our own military test products. They, they test things through the assembly line. They test them and prepare them for production. Military-grade weapons need to have a certain measure of perfection to be battle-ready. Well, I w- in my mini-career as a computer system software consultant, I would test code to help prepare it for its proper application, getting all the bugs out. And so it is that God... Prunes his own people. He tests us. He identifies defects in us. God exposes our weaknesses. And the test serves to reveal what is lacking, what needs to be filled in us. We see this in the life of the Apostle Peter, who was tested, whom Satan requested to sift like wheat. On the night of Jesus' betrayal, Peter insisted. That he would stand with Jesus till the end, even unto death. And Peter eventually would die for his Savior, but not before denying Jesus three times, betraying his own fear of man and his self protective ways. Trials don't always produce maturity. Sometimes trials lead people to fall away. But for those who will humble themselves in trial, those who will submit to God's test, God gives grace to the humble. The five tests we see in this passage are the test of trials, wisdom, wealth, temptation, and gifts. Now, we believe that this epistle comes from none other than the half-brother of Jesus, The one called James, called James the Just in the early church, and he doesn't intro or bio himself. He does not call himself the brother of Jesus here, but there are three Jameses we know in the early church. One, the brother of John, who was the first martyr among the twelve. The other, James the son of Alphaeus, who we rarely ever hear of again. But there's this James, the half-brother of Jesus, who rose to prominence and leadership in the book of Acts, moderating the first church council the one referred to in 1 Corinthians 15 by Paul when he reveals that Jesus in his appearing appeared to Peter and to the 12, and then later on to James. It must have been hard for James growing up. Being a younger brother to the only perfect man to ever walk the earth, you can imagine James going to synagogue school and hearing over and over again, why can't you be more like Jesus? We can imagine him growing up with a grudge, with resentment. There was a time when James was not a believer. He and his brothers accused Jesus of being out of his mind. But at some point after the resurrection, after Jesus appeared to him personally, James became a believer, became a bedrock of the early church. And here he reveals himself simply as a servant of God no special status as the Lord's brother. And he writes to the 12 tribes among the dispersion, which is not to Jews exclusively, but to Jews and Gentiles, the language similar to what Peter writes in his letter uh, to the exiles, the scattered people of God among uh, the various regions of the Greco-Roman Empire. So he comes to this first test, the test of trials, and verse 2 forces us to ask the question, why should we consider it a joy to endure trial? Are we to be grateful for hardships and difficulties? Is this the biblical version of that which does not kill me, it only makes me stronger? Well, the Bible does not affirm our modern sense of self-actualization. But we do find evidence from the apostles who rejoiced that they were counted worthy to suffer for the name of Christ. Paul also would rejoice in the privilege of sharing in Christ's suffering, that this biblical teaching confronts our modern obsession with ease and comfort. And no amount of, of standard of living or relief from health and uh, medical issues will ever take these trials away. We will always have difficulties, even in this modern, advanced age. We can have joy in the midst of trials because we are reminded that we have a God who will make all things right. We are reminded that trials will come to an end, that even death itself points to the one who conquered death. Trials can and should bear fruit in our lives. God does have a purpose in our trials, even if we don't always know what that purpose is. And like Job, we may come to the end of our days not having a sound answer, but have to await before we go into eternity, into God's presence. So James insists that trials produce steadfastness and also bring completion, perfection, maturity into our lives. That testing produces steadfastness. It develops endurance and perseverance in the Christian life. The marathon runner, the Olympic gymnast or swimmer must be pushed and tested by his or her coach in order to develop greater endurance. Years ago, in my my college years, I coached swim team and I realized very quickly that the races and the meets were won weeks in advance by the training and the hard work and the preparation in the pool well in advance of the actual race. I believe we need to increasingly see that the Christian life is an endurance race. It's not always how you start or how many times you stumble and fall, but it's how you finish that matters. The road is long and full of pitfalls and hazards. Developing steadfastness does have an end game. The goal is perfection or maturity completeness. Now, as Protestants, we do not believe in purgatory, where we will be purified by fire in an intermediary intermediary world between earth and heaven, nor do we believe that perfection is attainable in this life. One of my heroes in 20th century evangelism was Bill Bright, the founder of Campus State for Christ, uh, the ministry in which I I cut my teeth in in college ministry before uh, graduating from college. And uh, unfortunately, Bill Bright came to a position of that, that perfection was attainable in this life. In terms of, of one's sanctification, he actually claimed that he did not sin in his final years. I believe that is misguided, unbiblical, and even abusive, especially towards those who obsess over their besetting sins and struggle to find assurance of salvation. But we do it from the perfection does await us in glory. And God is maturing and purifying his people through sound biblical teaching, through faith and regular repentance, through kingdom service, and through trials. One of our missionaries sent us a report not too long ago about a young couple who had been students of his at seminary. They married went on to have two young boys together, and for the last couple years were involved in a church plant. And then one evening, some six months ago or more, they went to the mall one evening, and on the way home, they bought, bought food from a standard food cart along the street. And that night, the whole family got sick. And for three days, they went to the doctor at least three times for medical help, As the rest of the family recovered on the fourth day, the wife, who had been the most ill, had to be hospitalized for kidney failure. Ten days later, she was dead. This young husband, father, and pastor was left with two boys ages five and seven to raise alone. To add insult to injury, his in-laws filed a police case Accusing him of murdering his wife. The police investigation uh, affirmed in negative that, and they actually dropped the case because it was obvious this man had done all that he could to help her, and yet his in-laws still insisted that he deserved jail. This man's own Hindu relatives laughed and mocked at him, saying, You preach that you believe in God's plan. Where is your God? Where is this living God? You believe in others, insisted. This was not God's plan. In other words, our lives are merely out of God's control. Other people avoided him, seeing that he was burdened with so much sorrow. And this young husband, father, and pastor had questions of his own. And in a state of vulnerability revealed in a, in a sermon, you know, why, why should I live There is no reason I have lost my beautiful wife. Where is God? Why should I believe in this God? Some say that you are a cursed man. You should kill yourself. But in the midst of such pain and trial, he affirmed that God is there. That God is very aware of his trial. That God is still sovereign and in control. That God is still good and faithful. And though this testing was great, he affirmed, while I have no answer to all of my family's questions, I do know that God is in control of all these things. You know, trials reveal the genuineness of one's tested faith, which as Peter describes in 1 Peter chapter 1, which being more precious than gold, will be found to result in praise and glory and honor of the revelation of Jesus Christ. Many of us will experience Job-like sufferings. And let me remind you that it can be very small comfort to remind people in severe affliction that God is testing them that this is for their good. When we are enduring great trial, we oftentimes want relief more than we want to be reminded that God is using this to grow us in some way. So let me encourage you To be careful, to be gentle when your loved ones are suffering greatly. Remember the folly of Job's friends. Trying to discern the reason for his suffering, trying to find blame is usually um, almost always better to simply remind people in great suffering of God's goodness, of God's power. Point them to Christ in the hope of the gospel, don't pretend to know what God is up to. But love them, be with them, encourage them, and point them to the tender mercies of God revealed in the Lord Jesus Christ. The second test is our lack of wisdom. Standardized tests and college prep tests like the SAT and the ACT test us in all manner of subjects. And God as well also tests us not just in trial, but also in ignorance, in our deficit of knowledge and wisdom. Verse 5 says, If you lack wisdom, ask God. If you are unsure how to pray, ask God for wisdom how to pray. I've concluded that God likes to be asked. Sometimes God will give without being asked, but other times he likes to be asked. I like to be asked. As a father with young children, you my kids know that there are certain things that dad is more than happy to provide, like ice cream. They know my weaknesses. But God does not have weaknesses he also is not stingy. God knows and loves to give good gifts to his children who ask. So seek God's wisdom. Do you? Do you seek God's wisdom for the big decisions, the big things? Do you truly seek his wisdom or do you seek merely for God to bless what you have already decided to do? Do you secretly prefer to have it your way, even if it's not God's best for you? Seeking God's wisdom means listening to his word and to wise counselors. Notice it says God will not reproach you if you genuinely ask for wisdom. But if we're honest, we we know of times when we can be asking for wisdom But what we're truly doing is failing to act on the wisdom we have. And sometimes I believe we need to quit asking for wisdom, especially if we're seeking to weasel out of our obligations. The man seeking wisdom on whether or not to marry the girl needs to simply make up his mind. It's fine to seek wisdom when you're trying to determine which job to take, but in the end, you have to make a decision and trust God with the results, financial decisions. Moving decisions, personnel decisions. In all cases, seek wisdom from God, but then act. Act in faith and trust God, taking full responsibility for your decision. Solomon chose wisdom over wealth and long life, but he lacked discretion and self control, which was his undoing. He had a kind of wisdom, but he failed to act according to God's word. He demonstrates well that you can have knowledge and degrees and accomplishments and still be a complete fool. The late Stephen Hawking, one example of a wise fool. The fool says in his heart that there is no God. Well, now he and many others know better. James warns us about doubts. And this is troubling because we all doubt. We all struggle with doubt. We, we don't know everything. We have uh, uncertainties about life. Thomas doubted. There were some of the twelve doubted, even when Jesus appeared to them, giving them the Great Commission in Matthew 28. So, so what does James mean when he says not to doubt? To If we're going to ask in faith and not doubt. I don't believe that James is condemning all doubts here. We're going to doubt and we're going to struggle. What he's, he's critiquing is the kind of wavering that abandons faith. That as you wrestle with your doubts and you go to God and you ask, you have to act in faith and not waver, not be double-minded as he goes on to say in verses 7 and 8. He says, one who doubts is like a wave being tossed by the sea. Years ago, we were out on the lake, my father's boat, and it, we were caught in a rainstorm. And we were flying, but we saw a boat near us that just was stuck circling. You know, it had lost all maneuverability and control, and we had to come to their aid and help tow them to appear. It's a scary thing to be at the mercy of the waves of the lake or the sea. I believe that James is appealing to this kind, this faith and conviction which serves as an anchor against the wind and the waves of life. I think he's warning us against what we might call a mocking faith. that is it's the kind of mocking faith that wants to test God, that wants to prove that it's all a sham, that is cynical and vindictive towards God. There's also the weak faith that lacks confidence in God's power or questions his goodness, Remember the, the father saying to Jesus, Lord, I believe, help my unbelief. That was a kind of weak faith and doubting faith that matured into a faith with conviction. There's also what I call demanding faith. The insistence that God must act on my own terms. The family who insists that God has to heal an aging, godly mother who's ready to go to glory, but they're not ready to let her depart and insist that God must heal her then and there. And God certainly can provide healing in all kinds of ways and manners, but oftentimes it's God's will to bring somebody in suffering home again. And there's others who insist that, that we are doubting if we admit that God may not answer our prayer according to the way we presented. We need to trust that uh, God will answer our prayers according to his perfect will. And it's not our prerogative to dictate to God how he is to answer us. But James warns against the double-minded, those who believe and disbelieve, even while being tested, who are guilty of vacillating. It says that the double-minded man will not receive anything from the Lord. He must not expect anything from God, though God can be gracious and even bless and answer those who doubt and even double-minded. Jesus was impressed by people who had great faith. People who demonstrated firm loyalty to him and to his father. The the boss is impressed with the employee who takes action. Who demonstrates loyalty, who does not waver. Not worrying about whether or not he will be compensated. That's the kind of employee most employers like to have. And so it is that God is impressed with those who demonstrate that type of Single minded focus. But the double minded people are those who are always keeping their options open, always open to a, a fallback option. They're like C.S. Lewis's black dwarves from the Chronicles of Narnia, who will follow Aslan if he proves to be the most powerful, but who are just who would just as readily follow the white witch, Aslan's sworn enemy. The double-minded are unstable, unreliable, but Scripture exhorts us to be single-minded. You cannot serve both God and money, as Pastor Rogers preached on a few weeks ago. You cannot love God and the world. You cannot love God but hate your brother. Scripture is binary. It forces us to choose God's ways man's ways. Thirdly, we're attested by wealth here in this exposition on humiliation and exaltation, how the lowly man, the poor man will boast in his exaltation and the rich man should boast in his humiliation. We see this pattern in Scripture of those who humble themselves will be exalted. Think of Joseph in Egypt. Moses in the wild, David on the run from Saul, even Jesus in his life. Each of these stories are an exaltation through humiliation story. But here, addressing socioeconomic conditions, we all have a level playing field before the cross of Christ, whether we are rich or poor. We have nothing to boast about in our worldly accomplishments. We are all like the flowers of the field that will pass away. Riches are fleeting and temporal. And we're reminded repeatedly in Scripture, let not the wise man boast in his wisdom, or the strong man boast in his strength, or the rich man boast in his riches, but let him who boasts boast in this, that he knows and understands the ways of God. The Apostle Paul boasted in weaknesses, confessing that when he is weak, he is strong. The grass withers and the flower falls. And so the rich man will fade in all of his pursuits. Think of Jeff Bezos, the founder of of Amazon, the current richest man in the world, Bill Gates, Warren Buffett. All these wealthy men with much to boast about in this life is no more than the flower of the field. And so wealth is a test. The one with riches is tested with pride selfish ambition, tempted to ingratitude. Scripture warns that the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. And yet poverty is also a test. Poverty can lead one to fear, anger, resentment, envy, and thievery. And so the wise in the Proverbs confess, give me neither riches or poverty, but only my daily bread. Fourthly, we can be tested by temptation. Verse 12 says, Blessed is the man who remains steadfast in trials, for when he has withstood the test, he will receive the crown of life for all those whom God has promised, those who love him. Think of the contrast from the Lord of the Rings, Boromir, who yielded to the temptation to seize the ring of power. In contrast, the Lady Gladriel who passed the test. The test, a temptation be, can be great. Adam failed in the garden where Jesus prevailed over the temptation to bypass the way of the cross. And this passage leads into a kind of a, a anatomy of temptation, and begins in verse, t- thir- verse 13, warning us to not impugn God with evil motives. For when we are being pressed in on every side by great temptation, like Adam and Eve, we want to pass the buck, pass the blame, and perhaps accuse God that this is his fault. But James clarifies that God does not tempt anyone, God cannot be tempted by evil. That we know in Scripture that God does give people over to their sinful inclinations. God can remove his protecting grace. And God does not lead anyone into temptation. That is the devil's work. We know that God tests his people. But Satan tempts them. The Bible explicitly tells us that God tested Abraham to sacrifice Isaac. He tested his people Israel in the wilderness with their lack of food and drink. God tested David, as we see in 2 Chronicles and 2 Samuel 24. When it says, Again, the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel, and he incited David against them, saying, Go and number Israel and Judah. I always found it fascinating that 2 Samuel attributes God being the one inciting David to number of the people of Israel. But you look at first Chronicles twenty one one, it says, Then Satan stood against Israel and incited David, to number of Israel. There's mystery here. Mystery in the counsel of God, similar to what we see in the book of Job, where God is the master, and the devil is on his leash. And the devil can only go so far but to fulfil God's bidding. But it is the evil one who comes to tempt us under the sovereign will and prerogative of God. God cannot be tempted by evil. In fact, there are many things that God cannot do. God cannot violate his own will. But we see in the life of Pharaoh that God hardened Pharaoh's heart by removing his grace from him. Romans 1 teaches us that God gave rebellious sinners over to their shameful lust. And as we struggle with temptation against the world of flesh and the devil, we need to be reminded of God's goodness and sovereign prerogative over all of these types of tests. Verse 14 tells us that we are lured into sin by our own evil desires. And let's be clear on what temptation is. Temptation is bait and switch. It's a fish hook. It's the appearance of something good only to trap us into guilt and shame. And once we're trapped, the more we struggle, the worse off we are. It must be cut out of us, surgically removed from us. A man in our church has a a tremendous collection of fishing lures. He's brought them in for our boys club on Wednesday nights and this man has fishing lures that look like fish. They sound like fish. They move like fish. They even stink like fish. And reminds us that temptation to sin comes in all colors, shapes, and sizes. And like the master hunter, like the master fisherman, Satan knows us. He knows how to get us when we stray, when we stray from God's protective grace, when we fail to take his word seriously in our lives. We are enticed by our own evil desires to sin. We find it appealing And we need to be honest with ourselves where we are weak, where we are easily tempted. It says in verse 15 that when desire conceives, it gives birth to sin, and when sin is fully grown, it brings forth death. Well, what is desire? Desire is not evil in and of itself. God has made us with physical bodies that need satisfaction of a kind. Desire is fundamentally a good thing, but because we are fallen, it's twisted. It's exorbitant. It's, we have the desire to, to fulfill and satisfy desires beyond the bounds that God has set for us. What is sin? Well, sin is seizing God's good gifts in forbidden ways. Oftentimes, we sin not by going after bad things, but going after them in ways that God has forbidden. And finally, what is death? Death. Death in Genesis 3 is a punishment for sin, the separation of the soul from the body. So how do we deal with that? How do we confront our struggle with our desires and our temptations to sin? Well, one application is to have clear boundaries, to know God's word, to humble ourselves before, to know where God is true and let God be true and let the follies and lies of, of this world be what they are. To not submit to merely moralistic rules, but to submit to the word of God out of humble obedience to Christ. And to recognize that our goal is to honor the Lord Jesus Christ. That what's really at stake in our temptations and our testing is not our own reputation, but God's reputation. And to be, have, have a burning zeal to honor Christ above ourselves, even as we do battle with heavy temptation. And that means oftentimes that we need accountability. We need to know and be aware of our weakness. We need to let other people know of our weaknesses. And we need a deep gospel understanding, a, a biblical immersion to help us and prepare us to train in righteousness. And this is something that only the humble can submit to. He put no confidence in the flesh, but put confidence in God by spirit to enable us to stand up when we are tested. Lastly, the fifth test is our own gifts and the gifts that God is pleased to give us. Verses 16 and 17, James says, Do not be deceived. Every good gift is from above, from the Father of lights. Well, what are we deceived by? I believe that James is, is referring to the deception that comes when we fail to acknowledge that good gifts come from God, that we take credit for our own gifts. Or perhaps the atheist who insists that everything we have comes from evolution, or ascribing power to inanimate things in uh, this cosmos. I remember a coworker of mine many years ago when I, when she announced that she was expecting a child, she just thanked her lucky stars. Well, what in the world are lucky stars? Thank God. Thank God for the gift of life. Thank God for the blessings that we have. Every good and perfect gift comes from him. Our families, our prosperity, our freedoms, peace, forgiveness, hope, all come from almighty God. And we know that the best gifts in this life cannot be bought. They can't be bought from a store. They come from the hand of God and the way he has structured creation to bless us, to sustain us. And let me remind us that God loves to give good gifts to his children. God is not stingy or hard-hearted. And as this passage teaches, God does not change. In fact, there is no shadow with God. The, The sun cannot cast a shadow upon God. God in all of his glory and brightness cast a shadow on the sun and stars and all of creation. And so the last point of this passage is the response of gratitude, that as we acknowledge that everything comes from God's own will, according to his word of truth, that that we are the first fruits of God's creation, that that God has blessed us with the gift of life, and ultimately God's blessed us with eternal life, that his salvation is the greatest gift. And so the pressing question in this epistle is will you reject God's gift? The the main theme throughout this passage is is, you know, who, who is God and what is his His most perfect gift? You know, some have questioned whether James belongs in the canon. Even the great Martin Luther referred to James as the epistle of straw. It doesn't provide a lot of teaching about the cross and the atonement of Christ, and the question is, well, where is the gospel in the book of James? I mean, James can come across legalistic at times, and Uh, You can read it that way because there's a lot of law and a lot of wisdom. It's a very convicting book on the tongue and our motives and wealth and so forth. But I believe the basic message of James is is to establish the standard of God, that he tests us. And if we're honest, we acknowledge that we fail the test. We don't measure up. And as we recognize that we failed to pass the test, we cry out for God's grace. As James 4, verse 6 says, that God gives grace to the humble. To those who will humble themselves and submit to the sovereign and gracious will of God, we will find grace and mercy in our time of need. And the epistle of James points us to the one who did endure the ultimate test for us. The one who passed the test to perfection so that we Don't have to. Jesus was tested by grievous trials. He was tested by the wise and the shrewd men of his day. He was tested by wealth and the lack thereof. He was tested by temptation for 40 days and beyond, even into the garden. He was tested to trust in his own gifts, to part ways from his father. But God, who did not spare his own son, but freely offered him up for us, is the one who endured for us. He endured great trials and temptations that were beyond our capacity to endure. And yes, it is his perfect will to conform us into his likeness, into his image, and God designs tests in our lives to grow us, to mature us, to perfect us into glory, the loving parent, teacher, and coach test the child and the student and athlete to see what is lacking in them, what needs to be filled up, what needs to be uh, accommodated for. And so God tests us to see where we are lacking, so that He might fill up, fill us up by His Holy Spirit. Jesus tells us to ask, to seek to knock and the door will be opened unto you. Jesus is there standing behind the door. He says, knock and I will come into you and you will come in to me. Yes, that the goal is maturity. The goal is endurance. But that can only be attained by those who humble themselves, who yield to God's grace, who humble themselves in the time of testing that God might meet us that he might show us more grace and draw us closer into the fellowship of God the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. May you take with you that grace as we humble ourselves this week and follow our Lord and Savior. Let us pray. Our gracious God, we do meet many tests and trials in this life. They can be overwhelming. They can be discouraging. But we bring them before your throne and ask that you would help us in our time of need, knowing that your grace is sufficient for us, that if we humble ourselves, you humble ourselves, You will exalt us in the likeness of Jesus Christ, the one who has conquered sin and death, who has attained to perfection even as he awaits us, our arrival into eternal glory. We commit these things to you and pray for your leading this week to come. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.